Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Rob Sheffield, and today is really as much a therapy session as anything else. <laughs> We're dealing with our, I don't want to say PTSD, I don't want to diminish real PTSD. However, as traumatic as it can be covering a large <laughs> festival, I would say that was what Woodstock 99 was. And as we speak, it is 20 years specifically since the day of the riots and it was quite an experience rob and i were both there and we thought we'd kind of look back and try to put it into some context i just posted a story on rollingstone.com trying to make some sense of it all sharing some memories rob's wonderful 1999 report woodstock 99 rage against the latrine is up also on rollingstone.com if you're really good at googling you can find my account Accounts at the time that were on a now defunct website called SonicNet. So there's a lot of history there. I, I then spent a year investigating it with my colleague Chris Nelson. So there was a whole set of investigative stories you can find if you're really good at using web.archive.org that we spent a year on that you can't actually access. So that's just the way it goes. Anyway, Rob, before we started, we were talking about the historical context. And you had a few events you were thinking of in the music industry that kind of set this up or were related to this or just were at the time. Well, it's coming off this massive boom for rock and for pop music in general, for all genres of pop music. 1999, it seems crazy in retrospect. People loved to trade $20 bills for CDs. They could not be stopped from that. People would go to stores and say, any 20s I have, I am trading them for astounding numbers of CDs. People loved to buy music in all genres. There was no genre that was slacking commercially or creatively. So Woodstock 99 was supposed to be a coronation of this unprecedented decade of explosion for the music industry. I mean, I would also say there was something to the idea that there was this weird kind of binary thing going on in the world of TRL and mainstream music, which is like you were either Britney Spears or you were Fred Durst. There were just these two extremes, neither of which were too complicated. It's just a binary that was kind of ugly. There was something bad in the machismo of the dude music at the time, and that badness was reflected in the ethos of Woodstock 99, I would say. There was some latent ugliness going on in the culture. Well, and certainly a backlash against all the women bands of the 90s. Earlier, the Lollapalooza tours, there were artists like The Breeders or Hole or PJ Harvey, all these artists who were very much on top of rock radio in the 90s. And then 1999 comes and it's just an astonishingly vicious backlash in terms of like really overt misogyny and Woodstock 99 kind of unfortunate, to say the very least, sort of coming out party for that sort of misogynistic backlash. I mean, a big part of the alt-rock ethos was a sort of feminism, even with people as mainstream as Eddie Vedder and, and Kurt Cobain were outspoken feminists in 92, 93, you know? And even the guy from Stone Temple Pilots wearing a dress on his MTV Unplugged to express his feminist ideas. It's one thing for Kurt and Eddie, who actually had opinions and ideas, but when Wyland is just like, well, this is just commercially how it's done right now, I have to question my masculinity, that's a sign of like how completely mainstream it's gotten. And then it just 
turned around. It's hard to say exactly what the moment was. Probably Kurt's suicide it started the alternative to the alternative, but it just all became uglier. And there was also a lot of the alt-rock stations, if you listen to the radio, had this kind of dude bro ethos. You were more of a college radio person at the time, but I think there was this kind of like, hey bro, here's some corn kind of thing going on as well in radio. And so it, it just was kind of building. And somehow Woodstock 99 itself, I was looking back and I interviewed women there and they said that it felt like, as opposed to Lilith Fair, which was the quote unquote women's concert, that this was the dude's concert, which is a weird, weird thing. That was certainly not part of any Woodstock ethos that I was aware of. Yeah, it wasn't planned that way. And when you and I showed up, so bright-eyed and idealistic, Brian and I didn't know each other then, so we couldn't commiserate over our trauma, that astoundingly horrible festival weekend. But we were both there really to be in the crowd. Other people were covering, you know, the backstage. For Rolling Stone, it was my wonderful colleague, Matt Hendrickson, was the guy going backstage, getting quotes from the artists. And I was the one who was out there, like, getting my ass completely kicked when Corn were playing. And looking around frequently during the course of the few days saying like, where would the exit be just theoretically in case I needed to run for my life? It was Rome, New York, which I had no idea. I was about to spend a lot of time there because I kept <laughs> going back to go through the county records and all sorts of stuff. It was sort of my new home for the next year. <laughs> I, had, I thought it was just three days, but I, I spent a lot of time in Rome. The hotel was next to a Denny's and uh, I became a regular breakfast, but that was all later. At the time, there was no hotel. I was sleeping in an RV. You probably had a space in the barracks, I would bet. Yeah, the barracks. That was like a completely horrible and traumatic situation that I didn't even have time to get into in the litany of horrible and traumatic situations in my article. I went to a barracks and there was a guy there who was an officer who claimed he had no idea there was a rock concert going on. And I let myself in with the key and he was sitting there surrounded by at least a 12 pack of empty cans. And he was calling the military police. He was calling security to investigate why I was there. So I was running for my life from the barracks. <laughs> They're still working on that case. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it was a decommissioned, purportedly, although I guess there were still military there, a decommissioned Air Force base in Rome, New York, upstate, a very, very ugly place. Like just yeah. physically ugly. Just like a parking lot with barbed wire around it. There was no trees. There was no shade anywhere at all, which was a, a serious contributor to the disaster of the weekend. The only shade was actually in the airport hangar where the jet fighters had been parked. To go there, you had to put up with an awful lot of emerging artists, let's face it. And some of us were willing to make that sacrifice just to get out of the deadly heat. But there was barely any grass, and it was a military base that was very much actively being used. The National Guard was doing maneuvers there that weekend. And one of the things that was in the investigative report we did, is kind of an obvious thing that no one mentioned or realized at the time, which is that it was a Superfund site, which means that it was heavily polluted. Now, they had a lot of reasons why this wasn't an active danger to the attendees, and I'm not arguing it was, but, you know, the toxins were deep in the ground or they were in other parts. That were, but still, could anything be less back to the garden than a Superfund site? So uh, that's absolutely, yes. And, and saying Superfund, not Superfund. It was not a Superfund <laughs> site in any sense. And the promoters were very big into the idea that this had been a place where where nuclear warheads were stored for all those years. And they were talking about that they frequently in their press conferences used the phrase swords into plowshares, that that was supposed to be the triumph of peace, love, and music over a military mentality. There was a lot of fatuous nonsense being promoted at the astounding, podium. Astounding amounts of that. But it's a thing where like a few hundred thousand kids are being lured to a rock festival 
And they get there and they're basically locked inside a parking lot in 100 degree weather and direct sunlight and uh, very limited access to facilities, very limited access to water and very limited access to just the most bare sort of infrastructure to take care of these people. Well, so they confiscated food and water when people came in. Then water was $4 a bottle. There were purportedly water fountains. I mean, and there were, but it was like, first of all, even if you could get to them, it was sort of like a trickle. Soon they became surrounded by mud people, which, by the way, it wasn't raining, so it wasn't the kind of mud people from Woodstock 94. Yeah, you yeah. don't want to know what that was. This was, yes, this was, <laughs> so, and we're using of, mud euphemistically throughout this well, entire thing. Well, sometimes they would switch, actually, like, some, sometimes they would actually break the water fountains and use the spewing water to become mud people. But basically, like free water in baking heat was extremely hard to find. Another thing we found in our investigation that one rough plan had water fountains near the stage, at least one of the stages, like right there, which is where people needed the work the most, and that didn't work out either. So there were a lot of flaws in the planning. And in terms of like water costing money, one of the many underreported details of this whole thing is the ATMs were completely out of money by Saturday morning. So even people who were willing to pay for water just had no access to cash. I mean, there were efforts made. I mean, they did have the medical team, you know, trying to hand out bottles in front. And it's not like people were, <laughs> as you wrote in your article, there were a lot of rumors about like mass death at this festival, which actually in one way only underscores how scary it got. In other ways, it shows how fast rumors spread in a pre-internet era, but there were no mass death. People were hurt, but it, you know, it wasn't, at least they mostly kept everyone alive. Yeah. Also, just to set the scene, there was no cell phone reception and the very idea of cell phone reception was really exotic at that time. There was a media tent with a table full of landlines that you could use, but ultimately nobody is checking in with anyone from the outside world at any point during this weekend. Wi-Fi did not exist. The internet did not exist. Well, yes, the internet... Sorry, yeah, Sonic right, Net. Right. Well, that's what was so comical as I wrote my piece <laughs> is that we would go back and I missed half the festival writing about the other half, basically. <laughs> no, I mean, that's literally true. I would, you know, I didn't see Metallica because I was back writing about corn. And because of the hilarious inefficiency of the actual festival, as you wrote, there was just an insane distance between everything. Combined with everything else under the heat, you would just be walking forever to get anywhere. And so I'd be back in the tent, banging out story after story, but we would post these stories that literally no one at the festival could read because no one had, <laughs> only for the people at home, you know, who could sit at a giant Windows 98 computer and, and I guess read it. There was that bizarre aspect to the whole thing. But the heat is not to be underestimated. I had a colleague, I won't name him. Okay, well, Christopher O'Connor, his name was, hi, Chris. He had just been to the Fish Festival, I guess the week before, <laughs> and covered that. And he hadn't used enough sunblock, so he had this like nuclear sunburn on the back of his neck. And then it got further nuked at Woodstock 99. I was very worried about him, but it was like his sunblock was vastly needed. It was just oppressive. It was overall oppressive. Yeah, sunblock was vastly needed. Also, in terms of, for instance, like I wanted to, for instance, sleep at night because I did not have access to the media barracks, like almost everybody there, you know, it was only media who were supposed to have access to the barracks anyway. So you had to find a spot on the ground to sleep in. And it was very difficult because virtually every spot had been used for very unsanitary purposes at that point. And so you looked for pizza boxes because pizza boxes, they serve the pizza that they serve in the States in little pizza boxes. And because they were white, you could tell by looking at it whether it had been soiled by human waste or not. So it became very high premium real estate was to find a white pizza box to sleep on as your pillow. That was the absolute best case scenario for sleeping conditions during that site. One to pause 
for just a minute and talk about The Jump, a brand new original podcast from MailChimp. It's hosted by Shirley Manson of Garbage, and she sits down with seven of the most influential musicians of the past couple decades, and it's a good list. Nico Case, Esperanza Spaulding, Big Boy, Dave One from Chromio, Perfume Genius, Courtney Love, and Karen O. And they kind of zero in on a single song, one that represents their artistic moment of truth. And they look at the impact that, that song had on their careers and lives. Kind of a cool, focused concept for a podcast. And Shirley's always one of the best interviews in rock. I'm sure she's one of the best interviewers as well. And new episodes start June 24th. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts on Apple, Spotify. Check it out now. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just got to get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you got to get out of the house. You got to have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code Rolling Stone. That's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code Rolling Stone for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. It's weird because big festivals are very common now in America. Had you been to a big festival in America at that point besides Woodstock 99? Lollapalooza wasn't a festival per se. There weren't things like this for the most part. No, and the European model, which was much more established, they hadn't learned the basics. I mean, you go to a festival now, the health and well-being of the people who show up at the festival is thought of in advance. You know, like I went to Austin City Limits last year and, and I noticed this is the first time I ever saw this at a festival. There was a sober tent and I was like, what a genius idea. I was like, every festival is going to have one now. A sober tent, that's it. It's just a really good idea with a huge payoff. And that's the kind of thing, you know, festivals have just gotten so much more sophisticated that way. This was really a primitive approach in a primitive era. What did you make of the music? <laughs> oh, yeah, the music. Well, speaking as someone who enjoyed Wyclef's tribute to the original Woodstock by doing his version of Janis Joplin songs, I thought Wyclef's Piece of My Heart was very moving. I liked a lot of the music there. And it was funny that my needs for the music changed as the festival grew, just the open brutality of it, you know, to the point where, like, I realized, I still remember the Sunday morning that the Everlast acoustic set, Everlast, the guy from House of Pain who had a career as a folk singer, man, peak 90s. And just the thing of, like, him singing acoustic versions of Marvin Gaye songs on Sunday morning after everything that we'd been through. Was, that was almost 60 hours into the festival at that point. It was so soothing. And I was like, this is exactly what I needed. Thank you, Everlast. I would have loved to see that. Again, I missed so much writing about the other stuff. But we were both there for Limp Bizkit and Korn, which were very intense experiences. I thought 
that Fred Durst was, for the most part, irresponsible. In your memory, which is correct, he did say if someone falls, pick them up. But I feel like it wasn't enough. I feel like he didn't mean to be irresponsible, but he was. And I think my memory is colored by, well, set the scene. Set how you think the whole Limp Bizkit set went down. Well, the Limp Bizkit set, it was very delayed because people were stripping pieces of plywood from rigging. So there was exposed electrical wires. So it became rapidly very dangerous. And they had people making announcements over the PA in a really ineffectual and bumbling way, not having planned on something like this, like a health hazard. So the crowd was very restless and waiting a long time for Limp Bizkit to go on. In terms of like blaming Fred Durst, he did say if someone falls, pick them up. He also says, I don't want to tell you guys to get mellow. That's what Alanis Morissette had you do. He was extremes on both sides. So it, it was not a thing where the Limp Bizkit set, honestly, like just the conditions of the festival were sort of manifesting themselves. The corn set was very, 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 very violent. And it was definitely a thing where like people who knew what they were getting into, getting into the pit in a corn show, had one kind of good time, which often involved being carried out on a stretcher, which was a very common sight. That was the first time I ever saw stacks of stretchers being just like taken out of the plastic wrap and just, you know, like rushed because there were so many people getting seriously injured. But it was intense and it was definitely scary to be part of and scary to witness. Yeah, I love the fact that somewhere you could zoom in in the crowd and there was me and there was you somewhere in there in both cases. But I would say a couple things about Limp Bizkit. I mean, one is, and it probably did get, if anything, more intense as far as moshing during the corn thing. I mean, it was kind of awe-inspiring. At that point, I think because of my Limp Bizkit experience earlier in the evening, I had gone further back and saw the corn crowd as a mass, just an ocean just moving against. It was one giant mosh pit. It was awe-inspiring and terrifying. So you were apparently in that. Well, and I was you know, trying to swim my way out. I talked to a guy at one point like afterwards who had had a great time. He had blood gushing from his head. His face was covered in blood. And what he said is, everybody knows how it works. If you can't stand the pain, you stay out of the pit. But the he, pit was the whole crowd. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It was very hard for innocent bystanders to stay out of the pit. He had a great time in the pit. He was determined to be in the pit and the violence was part of the fun for him, certainly in the moment at any way. But it was a thing where I was standing on you know, what I thought was sort of innocent bystander ground. And it turned out I was very much in the middle of a pit. And it was definitely the thing where like, you know, you're making eye contact with strangers and like looking for like, okay, who's panicked right now? <laughs> who's panicked and looks like they might know how to get out of here. But that was the first time that I was ever, uh, how do I get out of here? So in the Olympus Biscuit video that followed, there's a moment when they show a fake headline about Limp Biscuit blamed for injuries and stuff. I'm like basically positive that that headline was based on my own actual headline because <laughs> I talked to, I went to the medical tent because that was the kind of, I was really supposed to be like reporting, reporting. I wasn't just reviewing the music. So I went to the medical tent and I wrote a story based on what the doctor told me where the headline was, it's Woodstock 99 report number 39. It's still online. It's been moved to the MTV site because MTV bought Sonicnet. Hundreds suffer trauma at Raucous Limp Biscuit show. So, I mean, as you said, the fans were tearing plywood off the towers and then crowd surfing on top of the plywood, which I can only imagine what it was like to be holding those up, like splinters and nails and, and stuff like yeah. that. That could not have been fun. Then Durst himself performed on one during Faith, which, you know, in a way, I was thinking about this. So Woodstock 94 had been, I think, a better TV experience than an in-person experience. You weren't at that one, were you? No. No, me neither. But people who were at it seemed to not have, it was 
unpleasant in its own ways, you know, a lot of mud and a lot of, but and it really worked on TV, I think in a way, maybe even the 99 didn't. So there were all these big breakout moments. Like Cheryl Crow just told me the other day that her Woodstock 94 thing was actually a really major moment in her career. Like after yeah. that, that's when A lot of people. She, yeah. Green Day, Nine Green, Inch Nails. Day. 94 Woodstock was, whatever you think of it musically or whether it was fun to be there, it was like a huge success in terms of promoting all the artists there. The legacy artists as well, people like the Almond Brothers, Crosby, Stills and Nash had like very high profile branding moments moments as they would not have been described back then, but everyone who played at Woodstock 94 came out looking better for it. Absolutely everybody. And for lots of young artists like Green Day and Nine Inch Nails and Sheryl Crow, it was their first big exposure to a mainstream audience. So actually, I think that's important to realize because it might play into, for instance, Durst's behavior, because he may have thought that he could have a Billy Joel throwing the mud back kind of moment that would cement his superstar status. And in a way, he sort of did. But so, but that's what he was thinking when he got on top of plywood, thus sort of implicitly endorsing the vandalism and saying some of the crazier stuff that he said. He talked a lot. There's also moments he's like, he said, uh, Puff Daddy's in the house, 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 which I guess he was physically there. I don't know. But if you watch it, there's a lot of like, anybody see Ice Cube, 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 because they have all this like echo on him. So it's just, a, he just like said stuff. I remember Faith being the highlight of their set. Well, Nookie was also great. If you happen to like Limp Bizkit songs, then it added considerably to the qualities of, of Limp Bizkit set. Faith was really good and he changed the word so like, it takes a strong man Woodstock but I'm showing you the door. Lots of, you know, sort of yeah. crowd-stoking bantery type stuff that Fred Durst was always quite good at. It takes a strong man Woodstock. <laughs> it was interesting that he presented himself in opposition to Alanis Morissette. I thought that was interesting and ugly, of course. You know, Very telling. And, and around the, yeah, exactly. And around the same time he also said randomly like who here likes in sync you know and that same kind of like gross oppositional just ugly dude stuff i bet he personally had no feelings whatsoever about in sync but he was baiting the crowd it was like we love our law enforcement don't we folks it was exactly the same yeah, and was, although my was, joke about a, a, a white guy in a, a red baseball cap egging on a crowd turned out to be invalid because he was not actually wearing a red baseball cap that night he was, was not no he was wearing a dark blue baseball cap look at the footage i know you have a false memory too, right? Red baseball cap. Let's hear Nookie from Woodstock 99, Limp Bizkit, <laughs> if we can survive it. Bring it up! I mean, let the record show that me and Rob are both headbanging right now. So it's, <laughs> yes, it's yes. just like, I mean, it's actually, it's, I think the first time I really went back and and really watched it, I think, since seeing it in person was probably yesterday, because which actually shows that there is some degree of like something like trauma certainly being freaked out it was intense it's also funny to just see like there was a lot of like random people on stage like just these dudes all with like those oakley's and just like nodding their heads it was it was really something and i mean i will say corn i was awestruck at the crowd and a little scared like i said but i was also i thought their music in that moment on that night was very very powerful and it felt to me kind of like futuristic it felt like this is some extreme of how powerful rock can go to as I wrote my thing I think I was right because it sort of was like that was it there was none more loud rock couldn't keep getting bigger and louder eventually there was kind of a ceiling and it got smaller after that you know, and it's interesting. And that was sort of a larger point that I started to get into in this thing I wrote, that it just wasn't maybe some ways the, the high water mark for that kind of aggro big rock. I don't know. Well, hard rock 
It works well at festivals. Hard rock has always been designed to work well at festivals. Metallica were great. Rage Against the Machine were great. That was actually a show that I went to as a Rage non-fan, and they blew me away like so completely that I, I came away a fan for life. I, I think it was a progression, because reading your piece, you still were like a little bit skeptical. I, I think and, that, and, yeah. and I remember, I was like, yeah, yeah their records aren't this good. I went back to the records. Of course, the records are great. But seeing them live, really, also like live in a festival setting, they were just like a fantastic band for playing for like 100,000 people at once. Let's hear Corns Falling Away From Me at Woodstock 99. <laughs> It's funny because it sounds just like the Limp Bizkit songs have played out of key. It's, yeah. just, it's, just, but it's like, it, it, you really had to be there. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. Yeah, you had to be there. Also, we're talking about him distancing himself against Alanis Morissette. should be noticed that the folk rock stuff did not work in that festival sort of environment. And I had a great time at Lilith Fair. That kind of stuff, it did not work in the sort of the afternoon baking sun. And there was a lot of that. And it added to the creepiness of the environment, really. You were saying that there was a lot of music you liked. And it is amazing. Like, every time someone says, oh, this was a set I really enjoyed at Woodstock 99, without fail, that was not one I got to see. It was like I was deliberately excluded from seeing one goddamn good thing. Did, at you, the whole did you see the Chemical Brothers? No. That was the set of No, the I would festival. have loved to. No, I was, yeah, you I was locked away writing something. That yeah. was also, that's when it started to rain. It was Saturday night. And like, that's when we got a rainstorm, which really could have come in handy on Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon. But it was night and it was a very, you know, the Chemical Brothers are very into that hippie-ish kind of vibe. They just put out their fantastic record, Surrender, with old 70s hippie festival photo on the cover. And... They were kind of going for a more tribal, sort of Grateful Dead-ish kind of vibe, as opposed to the metallic stuff that was going on two miles away at the other end of the festival. Something about techno and glow sticks and Saturday night and a field full of strangers who are all on astounding quantities of drugs. That added to a very sort of peaceful bucolic. That's what really Woodstock was trying to be. I think one of my only fond musical memories is just a real anomaly, which is, so we were talking about this earlier, I went into the emerging artist hangar. As you said, it was not a stage, it was a hangar. <laughs> and there was an emerging artist, John Entwistle and his band, playing almost all John Entwistle Who songs at an absolutely astonishing volume. And I'm talking, I'd spent the whole weekend seeing corn and stuff, and this was way louder because he had brought like a stadium level sound system into this little hangar that was meant for like Guster or whatever to play or probably, or sub Guster, five levels below Guster. And it was just like comically aggressive. And it come to think of it, it's in my little piece about it. There were actual young, like kids in corn t-shirts running out of the hangar covering their ears, I swear to God. Wow. Because it was so loud. I had earplugs, thankfully. It was very refreshing because for me, it was like folk rock. It was just a little bit of like a respite. And I talked to John Entwistle afterwards and he turned out to be one of the reasons for the volume is that he was already almost entirely deaf, especially right after the show. I was instructed to shout my questions <laughs> in his ear, which I did. And he told me his story of the Who playing the original Woodstock and said that he was like the only artist, maybe Mickey Hart sort of somehow showed up, but he was basically the only artist from the original Woodstock to show up at this nightmare. That's and he basically was like, I'm the only one dumb enough to come, which I guess was true. So that, that was one memory. I, I love yeah. the idea that you ducked into the emerging artist hangar and John Ambrose's playing <laughs> Boris the spider. Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah, awesomely. <laughs> Let's capture your Chemical Brothers moment with block rocking beats from Woodstock 99. Yes. 
also a variation of what it's like what Limp Bizkit were trying to play. <laughs> like it's, it's all just different. It was very block rocky, yes. <laughs> yeah. Rocks and blocks got beaten severely. But also it had that sort of you know, tribal hippie drum circle sort of feel. It also was probably like the core kids were there. That would have been the yeah, the and the pick people of the, and the yeah. people that were on like maybe mellower drugs. I was not on any kind of drugs whatsoever, so I was like, "Am I really at this Chemical Brothers performance? If I'm not on drugs, did it really happen? You know, that kind of thing." But for me, it was one of the really beautiful festival-like moments of this particular festival. I wanted to tell you about The Jump, a new MailChimp original podcast hosted by Shirley Manson. She sits down with seven of the most influential musicians of the last two decades. Nico Case, Esperanza Spalding, Big Boy, Dave One from Chromio, Courtney Love, Karen O of the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and Perfume Genius. In each episode, they discuss a song that represents the guest's artistic moment of truth and the impact that song had on their careers and their lives. New episodes start June 24th. The Jump is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You also said you loved Bush's set, another one I did not see. Bush were one of those, I guess a lot of the bands were like this, surprisingly, very into the idea that they were playing Woodstock and making in-jokes about Woodstock 69 that were like completely lost on this crowd. So the bassist for Bush led the crowd in the, give me an F, give me a U, give me a C, give me K, that Country Joe and the Fish did at the 69 Woodstock, which was so controversial. Like they would get arrested for leading the crowd in the F-U-C-K cheer. And the guy from Bush did it. And you heard people say, okay, F, all right. And nobody had any idea why he was doing it. It was just, you know, like it amused himself. Bush were fantastic that night and they had hits. Very underrated 90s band, in my opinion. And also, they were a loud, hard rock band who had a very strong female following, and that was very unusual for this particular lineup. When did they play? Was it, it, must have been it was Friday night. Friday night, okay. Yeah, so okay. you were back, you were probably writing about Guster, yes, yes. and Jamiroquai, sorry about that. <laughs> and you were probably writing about The Offspring and their fantastic rendition of Pretty Five for a White Guy. And I missed, will see Dexter, Bush, sorry. Dexter from The Offspring, let's give him props though. He was the first person to speak from the stage and say, stop groping women who are crowd surfing, which I think- More in retro, power to him. You know, and he said, if you see a guy above you, grab his balls. So, I mean, like props to Dexter Holland. Props to Dexter for that. That was also really early in the festival. So that was how it was already on Friday. Pretty fly for something. Yeah. Props for that. Props for that. Let's hear everything Zen from Bush at Woodstock 99. They're apparently iconic. <laughs> Woodstock 99. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great, actually. Yeah. Also, they did a cover, like another one of their like uh, Woodstock original, but they did a cover of Neil Young's Why Do I Keep Fucking Up? And it was fantastic. What a perfect festival song. But it's funny that it's Friday night and they're already like a sense of impending doom around this festival. Like, well, it's even funnier. I didn't know that Bush ever did that cover, but it's so appropriate for Bush because that was very frequently covered by Pearl Jam. So, <laughs> so, so it's just too perfect that they were covering a cover of a cover. You know, yeah, it's okay, just like, that is kind of perfect, but nothing can spoil my Gavin Rossdale yeah. buzz, my admiration. And, also, and let's face it, it's possible he didn't know it was a Neil Young song. <laughs> Like, well, right, he may have been little, covering that's, projects. That's a little yeah, extreme, okay, right? Okay. But also, he was a dude rock star who was hot. And just the idea of that at Woodstock 99 was such a novelty. This was a theme through the entire window that the erotic or sexual aspects of rock had been reduced to violence that was 
a running theme that was never stopped being shocking through the entire weekend. Well, yeah, and Gavin at least had some androgyny to him, and then later said he, you know, even had periods of his life where he was bi. So he was an exception to that binary we were talking about. Yeah, and he'd just gone blonde, and it really suited him. Gavin (laughs) has not really pursued his blonde muse much through his long and noble career, but it was fantastic. But also, it was a sense that it was a very needed set. Really incredibly grateful when Bush came on. (laughs) That's just an amazing sentence from Rob Sheffield, yeah. yeah. Sorry that you missed it because you were writing about Jamiroquai, who I have to say were awful. They were unbelievably bad. (laughs) I still have a grudge about how bad Jamiroquai were that day. The part where he began loving levitating and walking upside down was really impressive though. I didn't think you could do that in real life. (laughs) Unbelievable. And like recreating the video, (laughs) not just at a show, but at a festival outdoors in the baking sun from the stage. He had no idea how bad things were, how bad things are going to get. But he actively, he was like, woo, like I love seeing all the breasts. Show us your breasts, please. It was, you know, a non-Dexter Holland sort of approach to what somebody on stage would not necessarily know was like a serious problem throughout the crowd throughout the weekend. One of the promoters said something like they were often oblivious to what was really going on or deliberately oblivious. But one of the promoters during the festival when asked about all the sort of aggressive calls for nudity and everything and nudity in general, they said, uh, well, you know, we're not aware of any problems, but we're certainly observing. And it's like, whoa, man, come on. It's, yeah, it's, sad it's, to say. So something I saw all weekend was when there were cops there and, and the cops were gone pretty early in the festival, as I remember, but cops and security guys were buying disposable cameras because that was before you could take a photo on your phone. So disposable cameras were a thing. And they were selling disposable cameras at the tents and they were sold out pretty soon because people were like, ooh, we're going to take photos of all these breasts. And you saw like security guys with disposable cameras taking photos of naked crowd goers. Well, the security guards, uh, one of the things I learned in my investigation with Chris Nelson, who was my colleague that we did it with, the security guards were not screened too extensively. In fact, there was a <laughs> there was a test to be a licensed security guard in New York and they were given the answers before the the test. Wow. So, and some of them I think still failed. <laughs> but it's yeah. like, and then in fact, people saw security guards and we'll get to the rides in a minute, but some people saw security guards literally take off their yellow peace, whatever they were, peace, peace patrol, peace patrol shirts and just become rioters. That was definitely a thing. It was just like, just by virtue of the shirt off, suddenly you were no longer, the peace patrol was over. But were there other musical moments that you liked in your piece? You said that Jewel was a real, another sort of respite for you, that you enjoyed that. Willie Nelson was fantastic. Mm. Willie Nelson played Sunday morning. And best case scenario, at a rock festival by Sunday morning, you are worn out. You are sleep deprived. You are physically exhausted. You're probably a little hungover. And so the Sunday of a rock festival, the Sunday morning particularly, you need a certain kind of soothing. And Willie Nelson, I've seen many great Willie Nelson sets, but that was one where you could tell people just like physically needed this kind of soothing. Even though, you know, he comes on, the first thing he does is Whiskey River, which is kind of the last thing anybody wanted to think about Sunday morning of Woodstock 99. But it was just a fantastic soothing. It was a bomb for the soul, that set. Did he also cover Fucking Up by Neil Young? (laughs) Yes. He said, this is a Pearl Jam song. Yes. (laughs) There were great performances. The Roots were just absolutely fantastic. And it was funny because Erica Badu came out to sing You Got Me With Them and Questlove did this amazing drum solo. And it was kind of funny because you would think at a hippie festival as Woodstock 99 was still attempting to be at that point, you would think there'd be some more drum solos. I was like, finally, this guy gets that we want some drum solos. Let's hear Working Man Blues by Willie Nelson at Woodstock 99. Another set I missed. It's like a perfect score of seeing nothing good. (laughs) Ah. 
Well, that's really great. Rob was reminding me everyone was expecting a big ending to Woodstock yeah, 99. They announced a big all-star surprise tribute to Hendrix at the end. And rumors are flying all weekend. Were the Stones going to be there? Was Santana going to be there? In retrospect, it's really strange. Santana wasn't there since he was having his big comeback that summer. Instead, it just turned out to be just video footage of colors shaping. It wasn't like video footage of Hendrix. But by then, things were already starting to be set on fire because they made the brilliant decision to hand out candles to people. Peace candles. Peace candles. Some group handed out like so many candles. There was also a little flyer that came with it. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what the flyer said, but it was, you know, explained the big peace message of these candles and in small letters, do not use candles to start riot. It didn't say that, but, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but they forgot to leave out All those one. loose pieces yeah. of plywood yeah. that are all over the site because people needed something to sleep on that had not been soiled by human waste. So people would sleep on any solid surface. So pieces of wood were scattered all over the place was really just a poorly thought out decision. And then the Red Hot Chili Peppers did Jimi Hendrix's fire. And by the time they played that, I was watching it again. There were fires throughout the audience, huge bonfires. Yeah. It was truly like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I was there for that set. And it wasn't exactly clear. In some ways, it was less raucous, for example, than the Corn and Limp Biscuit. So I wasn't overly alarmed, if I remember correctly, because it felt less dangerous because as long as you stayed away from the fire, the fire wasn't going to get you the way the mosh pit or a plywood board above your head might. So it certainly felt like something was going on, but it wasn't a riot at that point. It was just a lot of fires. It built into a riot over the next sort of hour or so as that set concluded. And you can watch the footage. Part of it, I think, it was a lot, you know, and obviously I think it was a rebellion to a certain extent against, you know, being treated like garbage for three days. Sure. But right at the beginning of the Chili Peppers set, Anthony Kiedis said, hey, it looks like apocalypse now out there. We'd better sing some songs about fire, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, the Chili Peppers, they were not trying to incite a riot. No, no, they... I remember being an extremely good Chili Peppers set, too. It was all right. I think it was it was okay. It felt a little anticlimactic to me. And then, as we were saying, it's like that version of Fire wasn't even good. It was like a half-rehearsed... <laughs> if you're going to play Fire while a million fires are burning, it better be the best version of Fire ever played. Yeah, yes. For instance, the Stones at Altamont, they were very good when <laughs> they were, they were playing good. Sympathy for the Devil. That was an extremely good version of Under My Thumb that the Hells Angels stabbed that dude too but there's certainly no like the chili peppers it was not yet it was maybe not the best version of fire scar tissue was very good that day mm. also flea was extremely naked as very brian naked. pointed out very naked apparently looking at my article from the time i and the crowd glimpsed the full flea in all of his glory i have no actual memory of it which maybe is one of the many things i blocked out <laughs> but no he i mean he walked out fully naked and then played bass the whole time fully naked and I guess the bass came up a bunch of times so there's a lot of opportunities to see what was going on there if that was something you were interested in but my story and I you know I don't think I've ever told it on the show was just that always stuck in my memory to my and it's in the piece I wrote is that you know I trudged back and walked through sewage ruined my converse had to take my shoes and socks off had to take plastic off the ground fashion new shoes for myself got to a merch tent and actually bought new boots went back finally made it back to the press tent and one of the top editors who shall remain a name was like where the hell were you and I was like uh, uh. 
I'll write my story now, sir. Uh, so anyway, and then I went back into the riot to cover it with with a notebook, and you know, and smelled the pepper spray in the air, and saw some dangerous stuff. Them pushing over a trailer. I don't know what what you saw personally. During you the saw day. them flipping a car. A lot the, of things. the Mercedes. Yeah. 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 You know, which had been sitting there the entire time with the chili peppers. I was up front during the chili pepper set, and I was sort of to the right side of the stage, so I saw a lot of Flea's butt. I didn't see any more of Flea than that, really. And he made a really sweet speech on behalf of gun control, which was maybe a little like bolting the barn door after the horse is gone, but it's funny that people are literally burning down the festival site, and he says, if you've got a gun in your house, get rid of it! And I was like, okay, that's not really the pressing issue at this particular place in time. Flea had three overwhelming messages. Look at my penis, <laughs> no guns, and that's a lot of fire. So Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. Rob Shefflin and I talked about Woodstock 99. I feel like we could talk even more. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. They are always appreciated, and I always read them. I read the crazy ones, too. Whatever you want to post, go ahead. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.